0: Look, they could have been robbing banks. They chose to use all these skills and the sneakiness, you know, to help other women.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the story of the clandestine network that provided service for women seeking safe, affordable, and illegal abortions is unveiled in director Tia Lesson and Emma Pildis’s documentary, The Janes. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film tells the story of the Jane Collective, a group of women who used code names, blindfolds, and safe houses in an underground service for women seeking abortions in the years before the Roe v. Wade decision. In addition to The Janes, Ms. Lesson's credits include the documentaries Behind the Labels and Trouble the Water, the latter of which was co-directed with Carl Deal. The Janes is Ms. Pildes' directorial debut and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Lesson and Ms. Pildes spoke with director Andy Timoner about filming The Janes. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: I feel like we're just continuing the conversation because we just had such a wonderful (laughs) dinner. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Um, But uh, I found so much of what you told me over dinner, I feel like a cheater, but I'm going to have you tell everyone now (laughs) about it. So tell tell me about how this collaboration started. Um, For you, Emma, it's your first... It's your directorial debut, but you've been a producer for a while now. And, um, yeah, how did, how did you come together and how did you work as co-directors?
3: So I have a family connection to this film. My dad is the lawyer um, in the film. Um, Judith was his first wife. So my brother – I always feel like I need to get like a family tree out to explain this to people, so if you don't catch on, don't worry about it. But uh, my brother – my half brother, I guess, um, started developing this, um, in, you know, when, when Trump was elected.
2: So it was your, your father that you shared and you were from the second marriage. And so the, his son is a producer, right? And the phone rang in the movie, remember? And it's 110 years that he was facing, uh, that all of the women involved were facing. And he, had to cope with that and deal with was that and drag it out, right? And drag it out to yeah. Roe v. Wade.
3: Well, yeah. Basically. I mean, Joanne, the, the lawyer, really, the criminal yeah. attorney, um, really, you know, worked the case over over all those months and stalled and stalled and stalled and stalled, you know, as Roe was making its way through. But But yeah, my dad got
2: them out, you know. And then he was a baby at the time, but he had the impetus to make this now or to bring it to you. Um, because of all of what's happening, right?
3: Yeah, he was just, he was watching the, you know, Trump starting to pack the courts with ideologues, and Mm. he said, we're in trouble, you know? And so he started talking to his mom about, would the women be up for this, and came to me, and then we dragged Tia in, thankfully, and, you know... We're a big, happy family ever since making this all come together. And so. the timing
2: of the film, right? Any film that's coming out now, you've got to wonder what were the circumstances for making the film. Um, so you 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 got some seed money and you went out and got some interviews shot and we're talking about right before COVID, right?
3: Yeah. Well,
0: I'll, I'll just say we start. Know. we started in earnest talking, you know, Emma and Daniel and I, right when Brett Kavanaugh was being um, uh, confirmed in the fall of 2018. And then things just got, went from bad to worse. You know, um, I think at the very end of a very long day of interviews in Chicago where we talked to Dory, who opens the film, Kathy, um, who's the nurse um, at Cook County Hospital, describing the septic ward, and then Crystal, um, we got the news that RBG had died. And so fuck, you know, like it was so a hard day and it it just, it got worse. So, so there were these milestones all along the way of, of, in the making of this film. And of course now releasing it as the court is about to drop this decision and the states are falling like dominoes now, you
3: know? Well, and the first, the first one, the first one of those was, was when Kennedy resigned from the court because he was conservative but he was sort of keeping things status quo at least um i you know wrote an email to lisa heller and i said are you sure you don't want to make a film you know about a time in this country women when women don't have the right to choose um and lisa in her infinite wisdom said you know gave us some gave us some seed money so it was really from the beginning um you know a lot of people keep saying to us you know can you even believe the timing that this is coming out but the writing was a little bit on the wall, you know. I mean, we we were watching it. it the timing is quite incredible. I mean, we're, the, the film's coming out June eighth, and Roe is likely to fall a couple weeks later. Um, but the writing was on the wall, you know, for many years there.
2: I mean, do you think that the film can? I am mean, now you're on the. You're you're really you, you were at Sundance, and now you're you know on the. On the campaign trail of your own, I mean, is there any movement that you think the film can have or impact that you think the film is already
0: having? Oh God! Well, you know, the you know, we want to be part of the conversation, and you know, you don't have to imagine what it's going to look like when Roe is taken down. We we show you, and every time we've screened this film, we've had people come to us with like these horrendous stories Um, in D.C. Um, a woman stood up in the audience. She said her grandmother died when her mother was five years old because of a back alley abortion. And she'd never told people that. And it was like the floodgates, it sort of opens the floodgates for these conversations. So, you know, we, as, as you do with a film rollout, you talk to press, you get on, you know, the radio and you get some print and this is an opportunity to get this issue, Um you know, in the style section, and the movie section, you know, have, you know, these podcasters talk about it and hopefully inform the conversations already happening around abortion.
2: And there's a, there's several elements on a craft level that you bring to make it accessible, to make it watchable, to make it not fun, but sort of fun. A I mean, a like little a really light <laughs> yeah. because there is this sort of espionage aspect yeah. to it of yeah. like, you know, there's the front and the place mm-hmm. and... um got to get the people from the front to the place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, and the personalities involved mm-hmm. are feisty.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so tell me about drawing that out. Mm-hmm. What was that process yeah, like? Yeah, I
3: mean, we, we, from the beginning, we talked about this as sort of a, a caper film. You know, I mean, it just was such a fun idea for us to be able to make a caper abortion documentary you know i mean it just it it just excited us so we played that up you know i mean and also that's a genre that's really you know traditionally very male 1970s you know to invert that and make these women the the stars of that show was really exciting to us and that came out in the music and that came out in the cutting and that came out in i mean we really you know we We had a lot of fun with it. So – and that makes it watchable and and hopefully people, you know. Definitely. You know. Well, and a lot of laugh out loud
0: moments, you know, which you might not expect in a movie about abortion, you know. And and it kind of threw us for a loop. I mean, you know, sitting there talking to Mike – (laughs) <laughs> I had no fucking idea what was, co- you know, going to come out of his mouth. And you gotta it was, be, what does he
2: say? you got to be honest if you're going to be a criminal or you got to <laughs> tell the truth if you're going to break the law.
0: You know, it, 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 so I think we the, the, and the women have this playful spirit. Look, they could have been robbing banks. They chose to use all these skills and the sneakiness, you know, to help other women. But, you know, that that feeling of underground Chicago was something we really wanted to elicit.
2: And you also made the the very astute point that all of these anti-war movements were so male-dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were people who were prone to activism. They weren't going to sit back. And this is the greatest time in our history of uprising, you know, and they're in this kind of this male-focused led movement and they just kind of left and formed their own movement. But what's interesting is it is such an underground movement that it was revelatory to watch. Um, I don't think, many of us, I certainly didn't know about the Janes, you know, um, to what extent, I mean, did you know about the Janes?
0: You know, I had a book on my shelf, you know, that, um, that Carl, my, my partner, um, bought for me and it sat on my felt. I, so I cracked it open when Emma came out. Oh, I have that book. I read it. Um, but I, um, you know, they're sort of mythical, you know, and, um, there's, you know, been some print, devoted to them um there was a there was a little film made but it no none of them have come out like like this put their names you know to this work um and the and the layers of the story so Laura Kaplan wrote the definitive book and we say so in the credits about the janes it's um yeah how many it's something like 30 abortions a
2: day 3 days a week
3: yeah That's a lot at, at the height well, yeah. was it 11,000
2: 11,000 total in total yeah and you also plunge us into dynamics. I mean, tell us about the sepsis story and what happened with that, and how you pull that out um,
3: of the that woman that died. Sad, yeah, very. Yeah, yeah I mean, that similar. certainly was something that they hadn't talked about on the record. Really. I mean, it, it was in Laura's book, but that all, it was all Laura's book was all aliases. So um, it was, you know, it was a, a sensitive one, and um, but one that we really wanted to include because it, it really impacted them, you know? And, you know, you have 19-year-olds being responsible for helping other women get abortions. There's something wrong, you know? And and th- that woman didn't die because of them, but, you know, but it's just, you know, we talked, Tia and I talked a lot about how everybody's a victim here. in Not in that they don't have agency in their lives, but that they shouldn't be put in the position to be giving health care to other women, you know? I mean, that should, be, that should be the bigger institutions that are supposed to be responsible for that. So it was important for us to put that in, even though they weren't responsible for that death, to show the stakes and to how it was affecting them. Um, and, you know, that woman died a few months before Roe passed.
0: It's, and, and, yeah. and there were septic abortion wards in every major city in this country. Yeah. So, we're, not it was, just
3: Chicago, there's
0: LA, yeah. DC,
2: New York, everywhere. And it was like one a day, right? Of people dying every day from a bad abortion. Once a something week. Like yeah. Once a week. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. And we're heading right back there and it's 2022. Yeah. yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it's one thing to look at something and it's gorgeous. By the way, the footage is just stunning. I was saying to Tia, the, the rose hue. Across all of this different archival footage, um, is your colorist deserves a round of applause, Ken Zerelnik? Yeah, and Beautiful. Kristen Huntley,
3: our editor, is just a genius, and and you know is our third. Our let's, third. Let's year. mention that. Yeah, yeah. The, the archive. Um,
2: where does that footage come from? Did you shoot reenactments? You. Um, some of it looks, you know, those heels going down the hall. Like it's yeah. so detailed. The storytelling. The bulletin boards, the needle yeah, on the elevator. Absolutely
0: but. no reenactments. It's all period footage. <laughs> Nobody um, wants
3: reenactments in an abortion <laughs> documentary. <laughs> we were <you laughs> <know>. or animation. <laughs> there is so
0: much richness in the Chicago Film Archives, and if you hadn't yeah. had, haven't had a chance to look at that collection, it's you know experimental film. There's home movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the, also, the cartemkin Collection. Mm-hmm. Um, we drew a lot from a experimental filmmaker named Joanne Elam, whose work, anybody heard of her And no. um, yeah. Well, so a lot of the interiors in this film were shot by her, um, Vivian Mayer, um, you might've seen the film about her work as a photographer. She also shot a lot of eight millimeter and not that much of it has been transferred, but we were lucky enough to get this beautiful material of, of women on the street, um, I was saying earlier, like so much of the women on the street shot at that era was really objectifying and very voyeuristic. And and so these female cinematographers did something very different. Mm-hmm. Like you actually focused on their eyes and their pain, you know, and not just, you know, their boobs. So.
3: And and the other thing was that we really wanted to be inclusive of women of color, even in the archive, because this was affecting all of the women in Chicago and it was not easy to find, you know, archival footage of women of color, and we really had to dig deep. What was easy to find was you brought up the 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 men in the in the in the movements that say, "My question, please," and talking that came back. We got we got tons of those shots in an instant. Um, the men being you know, dominant in, in the anti-war movement and all that, that was easy. But it, it, you know, we really went through an inc- insane amount of archive. I mean, I was, I was, even,
2: even in that footage, it, you know, we've all seen more footage of the sixties on film than any other era. And it, there was so much footage I had never seen, you know, it was really beautiful.
3: Thank you. Uh-huh. Well, and and <laughs> one of the real
0: finds was, you know, the abortion raids at the beginning of the film, these This was not a cheat. These were actually arrests in different cities around the country of, you know, abortionists and their patients. Um, And it was stunning. And we got it from local news archives. And it really reminded me um, of the footage from the uh, Miami Public Library um, of the arrests in the gay bars in you know, it's the footage we've all seen. There's not much of it. Um, but it was very, you know, I'd never seen abortion doctors being arrested from that era. And there was a lot more that we just didn't have room, you know, for, but that was sort of a revelation. Another revelation for us was, you know, learning about the role of the clergy in this whole scheme of things, not in opposition to abortion, but, you know, helping to facilitate women's, you know, care, um, the mob's role. Holy crap! Who knew uh, that the mob was involved in delivering abortion care <laughs> and profiteering from it?
2: I mean, I guess anything that is against the law is probably and profitable. Good, and profitable. Yeah. So, what is what does our future look like with this? I mean, you, you've been having the the privilege of sharing it with audiences, and I imagine some people that are very close to the subject matter and to the legal aspects. So, you're mentioned. So. Obviously, Texas and other states. What other states right now are falling?
3: Oklahoma. um,
0: Wyoming. South Dakota. mm
3: -hmm.
0: I mean, really, they are pre-existing bans. So, you know, before before Roe, there were laws on the books. Some of those laws still exist. And so if Roe is eliminated, then those laws, you know, are the laws on the books. And then there are post-Roe, they call them trigger laws that – are there just in case Roe goes away, those those laws will be in effect. It's
3: grim. It's grim. And and Roe's gonna go. Um but there's a lot of people doing stuff like this, and a lot of people being, you know, decent and helping other women, and that's not the way it necessarily should be. But I guess, you know, that's It's hopeful in that, you know, in seeing that, you know, we want to help each other. Yeah, this is
2: going to become a roadmap of of probably other organizations to sprout up now.
3: I mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things already. And the landscape has changed, you know, because there's the abortion pill. They don't have to do DNCs in the same way. So there's the internet. You know, I mean, there's, there's right. a lot, there's that's a right. lot that's different, but, um, the ingenuity and the, and the stick to itness of women, um, and male allies is the same.
0: Um, and some of the, and the barriers are the same. I mean, the women have to travel if, you know, if they're in Texas, they can't get abortion now. They've got to come here. They've got to go to Southern California. Um, they have to be driven. They have to raise the money to leave. Their work, get child care. Um, There's so many barriers that is going to keep a person away from getting that care, and they're criminalized in the state of Texas, even if they get an abortion in California. You know, it's
3: insane. Um, And and that poor women and women of color and rural women are the ones that suffer. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's like what you said in the film is like 500. You get a Cadillac or you get a just depends on your money, right? And what you have and it comes down to, it should never come down to that. And do you have
3: childcare and do you, I mean, it's just, you know.
2: Yeah. It made no sense to me, the law back then that you had to be married to get contraception. <laughs> it was uh, a
0: little counterintuitive. Yeah. That was taken like, down by a Supreme court decision. You know, they, they had to go to the Supreme court to get that eradicated.
2: That's not, um, bundled up with roe v wade though at
0: all no it's um no so that's, but, who that's knows, right. but soon this, that's next right who knows it, and the irony is that the birth control pill was being manufactured out of chicago out of the cereal factory so here they were like making birth control pills but the women you know in the city couldn't actually access them if, if they didn't have a wedding ring
2: I, I love the fact that it was not a common name too so call jane it's just such a common name now. <laughs> it's like really, but brilliant, you know, and then tell us about Jody. I mean, it's fantastic, uh, a fantastic character. And obviously she was passed by the time you made the mm-hmm. film, but you were able to bring her alive. How did that, how did that work?
3: Yeah, I mean, we got really lucky. This was also in the credits. The filmmaker Dorothy Fadiman um allowed us to use an interview that she did with Jody and Ruth because she believed in the film and she believed, you know, that what the work that they did should be showcased. And so And she didn't she, want a cent for it. Gratis. She gave it to us gratis. So that was just a like a gift from God for us because we just how could you not have Jodi and Ruth in this film, they, they were so instrumental, um, in, in making this thing go. And, you know, we got to have those moments where Jodi says things like it was our moral obligation to disrespect the law that was disrespecting women. And then she stares directly into the camera the way that Jody does, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't manufacture that. You can't read. You can't, that, that's film, you know? I mean, that's just so, and the other thing that's so great about having her in the film is it was so moving to the other women when they saw the film to see Jodi again and to see Ruth again. And that was very touching to us. So,
2: Tell us about, yeah, tell us about how that's been for for the Janes themselves to see this come out. Well, a
0: lot of them haven't even been in contact with each other all these years. Some of them have. Some of them are besties, even if they don't live, you know, in the same city. But a number of them never even met at the time. You know, Heather Booth was, you know, sort of legendary, but many Uh, of the Janes hadn't, you know, hadn't met her. They, a lot of the women we talked to, were telling us their stories, you know, on camera for the first time. And sometimes about their own abortions, they were telling those stories for the first time, period. They they hadn't necessarily even told families uh, about that. And they're doing that now, Um, but it was really moving. And I think they were, you know, they felt called to action. They felt like this was the moment, if there was any moment, you know, to have these conversations and to put themselves on record and to put their names, you know, to their faces. The time was now. I mean, you notice some of the women, you know, chose not to have their last names in the film. We left it up to them. We felt like it was their call. You know, we wanted to give them the choice given the climate right now, which is not pretty, you know, to to be able to anonymize themselves a little bit. But um, I think that they're having a, a, a really nice reunion around this film. We're going to be showing it in Chicago where a lot of them live. Um, as part of the closing night of doc, okay. opening night of Doc Ten, um, and a lot of there's a, another group of um, Janes who are in the New York area, and we're going to be um, the closing night of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. So wow. there'll be a massive Janes there. So it's been it's been a nice journey for them and for us to to be there with
2: them. That's great. I, I want to ask about uh, Do you know Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky? She's from Chicago. Mm. She actually, we I met her and she led a group, like her start in politics, and she's still in the Congress mm-hmm. for, you know, decades. She would know about this and want to know your film. She started with a bunch of housewives who wanted to get the expiration date put on meat. Mm. They were tired of feeding bad meat to their families and the grocery stores wouldn't do it and they just basically like, you know, stood in there and did the first sort of nonviolent protests around that and the stores called their husbands and said you better come pick up your wives you know um but she would so appreciate your film we'll have to invite her to for school. sure yeah um um in every film there's a point where you you kind of hit a, a hard spot where it's not working and then there's a breakthrough tell me about sort of where that was for you guys in terms of um the greatest challenge with this, you mentioned having to leave stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, was there something that you had to go get at all? Mm-hmm. Something that was missing or were, cause I know you had to do all the interviews then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And usually we have the opportunity to go out and get more. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have to like,
3: I, well, I think the thing, the interviews that we had the hardest time getting were the women that used the service Mhm. You know, we got lucky to have some of the index cards which we blurred out and but largely um they didn't keep those or they ate them in the back of a paddy wagon it was the other way they got rid of it. but you know, I mean largely they didn't keep any records and, and and it wouldn't have been necessarily appropriate for us to to reach out via those anyways. So we and and we really wanted to get, you know the experience, even more specifically of women of color that used the service um because mm-hmm. Jane served those communities. And that was tough. And what we ended up doing is putting a, an ad in the Chicago Reader. and Dory responded um and that was incredibly lucky. and you know, we spoke to her, we did a pre-interview with her and she said, yes, I had a Jane abortion and it was just so incredible and she says all these just really moving things that she says in the film about, you know, about how she didn't know that women cared about each other these I mean, this way and all of this stuff that's incredible and sort of at the end of the conversation she said, oh, and I had a mob abortion. We we're like oh my god this is just so extraordinary now we have some somebody that experienced both um so we got very lucky with that and that was old school i mean it was it was in the paper that you know that we were able to do it because we were just sort of at our wits end we didn't know what else to do
2: that's really interesting so you ran an ad yeah you ran an
0: ad Ima- imagine that people are still re- reading the newspapers it wasn't even on the digital that's actually you know?
2: really smart yeah, say, simple yeah. and smart.
0: You yeah, know? but to, you know, to answer your question about the, you know, I think we struggled a lot about where to put the septic abortion w- ward. I mean, it's such mm. heavy, heavy content, and you know, it's for a while it was at the end of the film. For a while it wasn't in the film. You know, the, like the talking about women self-inducing. You know, not just there were stories about women using Lysol, you know, to self-induce and and. I mean, for one thing, it's, it's heavy. And so what we, what, I think what we came upon was, you know, we needed, we needed to put it early enough. So it sort of sets some context Mm -hmm. and people understand what the stakes are, Mm -hmm. that this is what the real stakes are, but it's not early enough that it just sort of kills, (laughs) like people are going to walk out of the theater. Um, And luckily, you know, Eileen gives us this sort of, perfect opportunity because after she talks about smoking dope and there's this laugh line and kind of have this bit of a chance to release, then we sort of get into Time this the septic, you know, abortion. septic abortion yeah. ward. And I feel like that, you know, it's it's going to be hard anywhere, but I think that was the right place to put it. It was really important also mm-hmm. to
2: set up the stakes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, both of your answers are wonderful because you have a <laughs> production challenge and a post-production challenge. Yeah. Um, tell us about developing the music.
3: Mm. Max so Avery Lichtenstein. So good. He's just so good. It was just one of those, like, kismet things, you know. We we brought him on and we spewed all these words and descriptors at him. Um, and we talked about the, the idea of, of the caper, you know, Thing in the '70s and sort of rooting ourselves in that in that milieu, and um, and he just got it. He just got it. He would send us stuff, and you know, a lot of times it would just be it. Um, so it was just one of those those magical collaborations. We we got incredibly lucky with him, and then we picked a couple. You know, we have a, the MC5 song, Tina Turner and Graham Nash, the trifecta. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the MC, MC5 was actually playing there. Yeah. It, this, this was Sync, you know. They were playing at the DNC, and mm-hmm. that footage sort of s- surfaced. Um, but that was sort of a lark that, you know, Emma was the genius behind getting that Tina Turner song. We had originally put in um, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, um, You'd be surprised that it was very expensive. The Stones were happy to have this in our film, but weren't happy to give us much of a discount. And we're like, what? you know, uh, it's a hard play in the, in the montage the, the, of um, 1971, 72 abortion rallies and anti-abortion rallies. And, um, and we were just racking our brain. We tried everything. I should have called you Jim. You would have known, oh man! <laughs> um, but like, so Emma finds this Tina Turner song. Never heard of it before, and it turns out it's called "Can't You Hear Me Calling?" Like, how?
1: Perfect.
0: And it's so wonderful. And the backstory—some of you may know if you've watched the the film about Tina Turner. You know, she mm-hmm. she had an abortion during this time when it was illegal. It was, you know. Um, in the context of this very abusive relationship, um, and she's talked openly about it and written about it, and so there's some—I don't know. To me, there's some sort of deeper meaning to have her voice in this film, to be speaking for all these women um, who who can't.
2: It's beautiful, and you—you you commandeered that. You went to Tina. You made that happen. Yeah, that we made connection. that happen. Yeah, that's and, great.
3: And 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 Graham was very happy to to have the film be in i mean the song be in this film and can't remember his name but the the guy from the MC5 actually said I got on the phone with him because oh. he we sent him the film to to look at before he was he was able to approve the use and he just wanted to tell us um how moved he was by the film and how much it meant to him and how, you know, every, you know, a couple times a year people come and ask him to use Kick Out the Jams and they never quite use it right and blah, 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 and this was, this was, he was really happy and so that that's so that awesome. made my rock and roll heart <laughs> very happy. It's so, so funny yeah. as a
2: filmmaker I geek out when I end up talking to these musical artists oh, yeah. who, and then you show you know and so often you'll get a reply from a record label that's just like no can do no we don't do this and if you can get to the artist yeah. and they connect with the work then yeah. it's really that artist artist connection yeah and it can happen yeah. soundtracks can come from that yeah. you know yeah but that's a great story yeah. and I it just I guess I'll wrap up by asking you about your backgrounds because I think it's really awesome for people to hear sort of how you arrived like where this film falls and in, in your of oh, where Tia you I know from back with um, Trouble the Water this is how I came to know you and Carl um, but you started with Michael Moore, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your past that led you to this great moment? Well, I actually, I
0: started. Um, I think my second job in film and video was for working for Davis Guggenheim's father, Charles, um, in D.C. Yeah, you just mentioned that, and uh, and I got to go to the Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota, because the producer was super pregnant. And Charles was super old and nobody wanted to go to South Dakota in the winter. And so that was my first like field gig. Mm. And um, and I, I was kind of hooked and uh, moved to New York. Um, Carl went to journalism school there and I somehow somebody got me a copy of the pilot for TV Nation, the um, 1995 Michael Morris TV show um, that Jim Zarneski produced and I was blown away. I'd never seen TV like this. I mean, this was long before The Daily Show. It was long before, you know, um, documentaries and their, you know, heyday. I had seen Michael's, you know, uh, Roger and Me in the theater in D.C. years earlier. And I was like, i got to work on the show. And somehow I just bugged <laughs> Jerry for like enough times that I got hired. Um, you know, I knew how to cut on the Avid and I got hired. Um, and I kind of just worked my way into producing. I call it my producer's boot camp because um, we were doing, seg. you know, yeah. we were airing every night. Um, wow. I mean, I'm sorry, every Friday night. And there were, you know, four or five documentary segments. And, and Michael had pulled together this stable of documentary filmmakers, um, Stanley Nelson and Pamela Yates mm. and Paco de Onis. And there was just this you know, cream of the crop group of people, RJ, you know, to learn from and to sort of, so that was just lovely. And and I continued to work with Michael after that um, on the big one, <laughs> me and Jim and our cameo appearance in that film. Um, <laughs> and uh, Bowling, for, bowling for, Columbine. for Columbine, thank you. Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 9-11 we made in, what, 10 months, um, you know, trying to stop the war. And, you know, in between those big jobs you know i did you know i did some you know producing directing of my own um made a film called behind the labels um and then um really by accident you know we stumbled upon Kimberly and Scott in New Orleans and trouble the water you know Carl and i were down there after Katrina and you know we made that film we realized you know i love collaborating with Carl it, you know he's a dream and um and we sort of got the bug to continue directing. We made Citizen Coke and um, and then COVID happened and we've had to divide and conquer a little bit. Um, and, you know, it was a blessing. Now you have a new... The ha- you know, partner. Emma... Get rid of that Carl guy. <laughs> 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 you know, look, filmmaking is all about collaboration, right? It's really whatever we're doing, you know, as, as directors, as producers, as, you know, behind the camera, in front of the camera, it's like it's just such a... Mm-hmm. It's a group sport. And so, it you know, working with Emma has you know, it's been a gift working with Kristen. We've tried to emulate some of the sisterhood that I think the Janes oh, that's beautiful. built, you know, and, um, you know, it continues. So Emma, <laughs> tell us about your, tell trajectory. us, tell us, tell Emma. us. <laughs>
3: um, I came into documentaries in, in sort of a strange, I, I grad, I was at Sarah Lawrence and, um, taking a lot of art history classes in my senior year. I was taking a pop art and minimalism class and became rabid for Warhol's factory scene. And so when I got out of college and didn't know what I wanted to do, I got a bartending job and I said, I'll take whatever internship excites me. And Rick Burns was working on his Warhol film. And I thought if I could sit there and look at unseen archive of the factory, I will have died and gone to heaven. So that's what I did. It wasn't to pursue, you know, right off the bat, it wasn't to pursue documentaries, but just to be able to just that archive, man, I just have a, you know, so that's what I did. Um I also worked on um the final episode of new- his new york series which alternately was watching people jump out of the world trade center um so it was <laughs> strange days strange days but i loved it and i loved being in that shop and i loved the the group sport of it i loved i mean, it just it just ticked so many boxes for me so um i continued to do that and i continued to do inter- internships until people started paying me and up and up and up and, you know, I worked on that Alex Gibney's Enron film. I worked, you know, um, and then eventually I landed at American masters, um, to work on a film for Susan Lacey. I beat Rick's Warhol film to American masters. I think he was still working on it before it eventually (laughs) became an American masters. Um, and I worked with Susan, um, producing for Susan at American Masters with my producing partner, Jessica Levin, for years. And then when Susan left American Masters and went to HBO, Jessica and I left with her. And we have since produced the Jane Fonda film for HBO and the Spielberg film for HBO and the Ralph Lauren film for HBO. And... Um, so yeah, so I've been producing all these years, very as I've said before, very happily producing. Um it's a good gig. And but then, you know, but then Daniel approached me about doing this this film and and I wanted to do it with Tia, but it was so personal, you know, I couldn't just produce. So have um, you been bitten by
2: the directing so bug? now?
3: Here I am at the Directors Guild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, welcome. Yeah, welcome so, to the Directors Guild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you are so. going to
2: direct. You like it? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, maybe I, I don't mind producing either. You know, I mean, I think. You okay, know, then I am going
2: to call you tomorrow. Oh, perfect, because <laughs> I
3: need a job. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Yeah, right there. Yeah.
2: Um, can everybody in the back hear that? I know with mass. Okay, everybody can hear. It.
0: I mean, I, I, look, I think the vast majority of people in this country support women's right to choose, you know, and there's some extremists and people who've, who've you know, hijacked the issue for political gain. Um, I think the people that we really need to worry about are, are, are abortion providers, you know, who are doing that work, you know, every day, day in, day out. You know, if, if there are haters out there, you know, I say bring, it on. bring them on, you know, <laughs> look, it, it worked out okay for marty and last temptation of christ i mean i look we this we hope this movie engages people look like it or hate it you know this is this is something we need to talk about this is something that we need to you know grapple with and you know let's let those voices be heard i just think that there's so many more voices that 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 could drown them out and they need to start talking and they need to start shouting. They need to start taking to the streets.
2: That's a great note to end on. All right, thank you
0: both thank so you. much for coming and thank for
2: making you. this film. Thank you. Yeah, I really thank you appreciate for All it. your
0: wonderful work, on. Oh, thanks, Tia. So, look, that forward was to fun. That was really fun.
1: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode three twenty nine featuring director Matthew Heineman discussing his documentary film, The First Wave, with Mark Levin. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.